0: Please, brothers and sisters, turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from the book of Revelation, as we will be looking at chapter 2 and verses 8 to 11. Revelation chapter 2 and verses 8 to 11. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. please then hear with me the reading of God's holy word. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, Sister Smyrna is only one of two of the churches which John writes to, which is blameless, which does not re- receive a, re- a rebuke from Christ. Now, in many ways, the church in Smyrna is, is a lot like Ephesus as we uh, looked at last week together. Uh, Smyrna was just 35 miles north along the coastland from Ephesus by the Aegean Sea. If Ephesus was the greatest of all the cities in Asia Minor, Smyrna was second to it. Smyrna boasted a population of over 200,000 inhabitants. And like Ephesus, Smyrna was a city of trade. And so Smyrna was a very prosperous and well-off city as well. Uh, Like Ephesus, Smyrna did not compromise their faithful witness. They they did not give in to the ungodliness of the city that surrounded them, but rather maintained their faith in Christ. Yet unlike the church in Ephesus, Smyrna did not abandon their first love. Now Smyrna was a church that was probably uh, founded and established in Paul's third missionary journey, which we read about in Acts chapter 19. It's there in Acts 19 that Paul is in Ephesus and he's going around and he's preaching the gospel. And we're told in Acts chapter 19 verse 10 this, that after preaching for two years, he did this so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, Smyrna itself was an extremely loyal city to Rome. Uh, Smyrna, in fact, won in a contest amongst other cities the right to build a temple to the emperor Tiberius in the year 26 AD. And their loyalty for Rome persisted so much that the residents of Smyrna happily engaged in the imperial cult. They, they, They willfully, voluntarily, happily offered up worship to the emperor as divine. Right? They were willingly said, Caesar is Lord. Now for the Jews living in Smyrna, and really throughout Asia Minor, the, right, the, the Jews were absolved from having to do this. In fact, all that they were commanded to do by the emperor was to offer uh, prayers to their god for the emperor. Right? That was what the Jews were called to do. But everyone else who wasn't a Jew had to be a part of and participate in the imperial cult. Now, Smyrna was home to a very famous bishop that I'm sure many of you heard of. His name is Polycarp. Polycarp, in fact, uh, may have been in the church in 95 AD as this letter would have been read to the church. He would have been about 26 years old at the time. And in the year 115, 20 years later, Polycarp is named bishop of the church in Smyrna so now he is 46 and bishop of the church in Smyrna. And 40 years later, by the age of 86, uh, the bishop Polycarp is put to death by the Roman authorities. And in fact, in, in every commentary you look at in, in the book of Revelation, when you get to the church of Smyrna, every single one of them recounts this story. And I think we can... See why? Because Polycarp is really a perfect example of what this letter is all about. Right? We see from Polycarp's death the very real struggles that the church in Smyrna was having to deal with and were going to deal with. Right? Christ knew what they were going to deal with, which is why he has John write this letter. For it is Christ who has ordained it. He has, he has ordained the suffering that they must endure. And so he writes this letter saying to them what? Fear not. Be faithful to death. And you will not experience the second death. And belief in that promise, belief in those words, can be heard in the response of Polycarp to the Roman authorities when they captured him and when they told him, you must confess Caesar as Lord or die. We can only imagine that Polycarp remembered the words of this Letter that they were permeating in his mind as he responded this to the Roman authorities. Eighty-six years have I known and confessed my Master and He has never done me any harm. Shall I now deny Him? Never. And then when they tell Him, well, your death is going to be, that you are going to be burned alive at the stake. Polycarp responds with this. Thou threatenest me with fire, which burneth for an hour and after a little is extinguished. But thou art ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Bring forth then what thou wilt. So now it becomes glaringly obvious to us, doesn't it? Right? Why Jesus writes or has John write these words and, and give it to the church in Smyrna. It also becomes glaringly obvious to us why Jesus uses the self-designation that he does here in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first, and the last, who died and who came to life. This is what we're going to find in in each of the seven letters is that the self-designation that Jesus uses that that He has John communicate to the churches corresponds to what's going on in the church. He's he's revealing to the church who He is and and why they ought to be encouraged and be faithful to the end. Just as He did with the church in Ephesus. What was their issue? Right? The church in Ephesus were, were doing everything externally right. right. They were abiding outwardly by everything that they were commanded to do, but there was no love. And so how does Christ reveal Himself to the church in Ephesus? Right? He, he said He was right, walking around the, the, amongst the lampstands. So what is He saying to them in that self-designation? He was saying to them, I'm watching over you, I see everything, I see you doing everything good, But you're not doing it with love as your motivation. And so with the church in Smyrna, he's doing the very same thing. He's writing to a church that he knows is going to be persecuted and be put to death. And so he's writing as the one who himself has died because he's been persecuted and has been brought back to life. He's writing as the one who can encourage them because he has been through and gone through the very same things that they have and yet they don't have to fear Because they can know that He is the the ruler of life. That He has conquered death. That He has conquered the grave. Even though this church must know that, that dark days are ahead for them. Extremely dark days are ahead. With this being said, then we want to consider our first point of this morning. Which is the enemies of the saints in Smyrna. Now what we'll find is that the enemies of the church here in Smyrna are really threefold. Right? They're battling a a threefold enemy. First are the pagan Gentiles. Right? The pagan Gentiles. We said that there's great patriotism to Rome in the city of Smyrna. Which means what? There's also great disdain for everyone who does not show that same patriotism and loyalty to Rome. And so this meant what for the saints living in Smyrna? Well, it meant that because his patriotism, because his loyalty for Rome permeated all areas of life and culture, right, that they were affected by it. Right, the Christians living in Smyrna were affected by it. Right, if they, they, they couldn't live economically prosperous lives in Smyrna as Christians. Why is that? Well, because because they were not loyal to Rome, those who, who would hire them right, refused not to hire them. Or those who had hired them were fired them. Or they would turn them over to the Roman authorities to be punished. Right? This is what happened right, to the Christians living in Smyrna. Right? It, was, it was either show patriotism, show loyalty, or lose your livelihood. Right? Lose, your, lose your means to take care of your family. And we, in a, in a very tiny small sense understand what what the fear is like of that Uh, you know over the past year maybe some of you here either have experienced it or know someone who's experienced it where you've been you've been told because of the, the coronavirus right that you have to get this shot or you'll be fired right this isn't something that just happens to christians this is you know, not just a Christian problem, but a problem for, for many people. But but all people, Christian and, and unbeliever alike, kind of experience what that fear is of, of perhaps losing your livelihood, the ability to take care of your family. And so what happens? Many people who didn't want to do it still did it right out of that fear. But there are many others who didn't get the shot, who were then fired. There were some who were able to maintain their jobs, retain their employment, not get it, but now what happens to them? Right, they're treated like second-class citizens at their work. They lose a lot of the abilities and freedoms that they once had. And others who didn't get it and were still remained and retained their employment, have now lost the ability to climb up the ladder and to gain economic prosperity themselves. And so, to a small degree, we kind of understand the, the hardship and the fear that they had living in Smyrna. Right? That they had this, this dilemma. Do I follow and do what the government tells me to do, which is worship Caesar as Lord? Do I go along with what everyone else is doing, so that I may work and keep my livelihood and my career for my family? Or do I not? And do I lose it all? Right? That, is, that is a very true and real uh, and present reality that the saints in Smyrna had to deal with. They had to wrestle with this. Now the second enemy then was the Jews. Right? We see this in verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. We see here that they are called slanderers. Right? They speak evil of the church. Right? They, are, they are plotting behind the church's back, right? doing things to, to harm and to hurt the church. And do we not see this from the very inception of the church? Right? We see the Jewish leaders doing this to Jesus and the apostles throughout the book of Acts. Don't we see slander going on from the Jews about the Christians and about the church? You know, one example of this is Acts chapter thirty, verse fifty. Paul and Barnabas are going around preaching Christ, and we're told that the Jews are are looking on and they're angered by it. And so what do they do? In verse fifty of Acts thirteen, but the Jews incited devout women of high standing and leading men of the city, and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. And so we see from the from the very beginning. Right? The unbelieving Jews were extremely furious with the Christians for a multitude of reasons. What was one of those reasons? How about the fact that it was fellow Jews who were leaving Judaism to become Christians? Wouldn't that make them angry? Right? They were, they were angry that all of these Jews are now converting to Christianity. And so they're upset by it. They're, they're angered by it. Right? Preaching this, this Messiah to them telling them that they need to trust and believe in this Messiah. And so they're angered against their fellow kinsmen who are now Christians. The Jews were also angry because they believed that if Rome saw Christians as just a sect under Judaism, which initially that's how Christians were viewed, that Rome would then take away the privileges that the Jews had under the Roman law. Why? Well, because Christians are stirring up controversy. They're they're, they're causing disturbances by preaching Christ. And so what the Jews want to do is they want to make known to Rome that these Christians do not fall under the umbrella of Judaism. And so what do the Jews do themselves? They begin to to turn in the Christians as well. To turn them into the Roman authorities so that they might themselves then be killed. And in fact, the Jews were so willing to do this that they would even violate their own faith and practice in order to see the destruction of the church. As history tells us, as Polycarp was being brought to his own death, it was the Jews who participated in collecting wood to have him burned on the Sabbath day. That is how much they, they hated the Christians. They wanted to see them die and burn. And so this is why Jesus then tells them that these Jews are not Jews, but they are a synagogue of Satan. And brothers and sisters, I want us to see here again as another reaffirmation that it is the church that is the true Israel of God. Right? It is this motif that we will see woven throughout the book of Revelation which is in keeping with the entirety of the New Testament witness. It's in keeping with what Jesus said, About the church and it's in keeping with what Paul says in his epistles. We can look at a text like Philippians 2, verses 2-3. to Paul says this, Look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Who is he talking about? The unbelieving Jews. For we, that is the church, are the circumcision. That which... Was a name for the Jews. He says, We are the circumcision. By what? Those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Right? That is who true Israel is. And in fact, who do the Jews who reject Jesus then belong to? What does Jesus say in his confrontation with some of the Jews in John chapter 8? He says. If Abraham was your father, you would believe Me. He says, but you don't believe Me. Instead, you're trying to kill Me. What else does He say? He says, if Abraham was your father, you would do the works of Abraham. But He's not your father. Instead, there is another who is your father, and it is His works that you do. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus says to them, You are of your father the devil... And your will is to do your Father's desire. And this, brothers and sisters, then is the third enemy that the church in Smyrna has to deal with. Not only are they fighting against pagan Gentiles, not only are they fighting against these unbelieving Jews, but now they also have to do battle with the devil as well. Now the word devil itself means what? It means slanderer. That's what the word devil means. This is what the Jews, we just read in verse 9, were called slanderers of the church. They were doing the works of the devil. This is why they could be called a a synagogue of Satan. Because they were men gathered and assembled for the the purposes to do Satan's bidding against Christ, to oppose Christ, to oppose the gospel, to oppose his church. Right. The the word Satan means what? It means adversary. It means opponent. Right. So he is the, the adversary, the opponent... He is the slanderer of the church. He is a, the father of, of lies. He is the, a murderer from the beginning. Right? He is all these things. So that all who follow in his footsteps and do the deeds that he does are his children. This is why the Jews can be said to be a synagogue of Satan. They were doing the works of their father. They were doing their father's bidding. Now, whenever we talk about the devil... And talk about how he's behind sin and these things. It's always important to clarify that just because this is the case, it never absolves the sinner from their sin. Right? It never absolves the sinner from their sin. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, calls the devil a tempter. Brothers and sisters, that's all he can do to you, is tempt you. Right? He is a tempter. That's what he does. He tempts out. Inside you, right, outwardly, things. That's all He can do to you. It It is inward. It is the inward corruption and evil of your heart that causes you to sin. Satan himself can only tempt you, which is why your sin falls upon your head when you sin, not upon Satan, which is why, especially you children, you have to understand, you can't say, Satan made me do it. No, it's your own evil and wicked heart that made you do it. Satan just tempted you. Right? He dangled the fruit in front of your face and you jumped for it. And brothers and sisters, this is what we need to see is going on in our text today. It is Satan who now hopes to spark up the evil of the, that resides in any of these saints' hearts as we read in verse 10, Jesus say this, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested and for ten days you will have tribulation. He's saying Satan is plotting, he's scheming, he's, he's around prowling, trying to destroy you, trying to destroy the church. And you know what the kind of the most wicked and evil part of it all is? Is that Satan knows he cannot win. Right? Satan knows that he has already lost the battle, and yet he continues to persist in his attack of the church constantly in order that he might hurt, injure, maim, and destroy souls. And so it's the devil who's behind them, the imprisonment of the Christians who are in Smyrna, because it is the devil and his deeds that are behind the works of the pagan Gentiles and the Jews. And as tempter and adversary of the church, what his desire is then for the church as they sit in jail, as they sit in prison for these ten days what His hope is for them, what He is tempting them to, is to forsake their Christian witness and to deny Christ and to dishonor God before the eyes of all these men. Right? That is what Satan is hoping that they will do. That is how he is tempting and testing them through their imprisonment. Right? That they will, under all of the weight of the suffering and the fear that they will give in, that they will say Caesar is Lord, in order that they might escape imprisonment and suffering. Now, what we need to understand, brothers and sisters, is that imprisonment in the first and second century isn't like imprisonment today. Someone does something bad today, you know, you get like twenty-five to life. Right? People are doing long sentences in prison. Uh, that is not how it was in the first and second century. Uh, prison primarily was used simply as a place to keep someone for a brief stay until uh, they had their trial. Right? So prison was just like a keeping place as you awaited trial to find out if you were going to die or not. Right? That is what prison was for then. And so what we need to see is that Jesus' messages then to them was, was not, in, you'll be in jail for ten days and then you'll be released. That's your tribulation. That's not what Jesus is saying to the saints in Smyrna. right? What He's saying to them is, you're going to be in jail ten days, and then you will die, but remain faithful until the end. That's what He's saying to the saints. Now, ten days might mean something uh, both literal and figurative, or it could just be figurative. Uh, ten is simply a number used oftentimes... uh for totality, completeness, fullness in the, in the Scriptures. Uh, we see this with uh, the ten plagues poured out upon the Egyptians, the ten commandments. Later in Revelation, you'll see ten horns. Right? And so we need to see that this number ten carries a symbolic significance of totality in whatever it's referring to. So that what he's saying to them is they will be imprisoned and they will face the totality of tribulation before they suffer, before they die. Right? they're going to face the totality the fullness of the of the tribulation before they die this also could mean a literal 10 days this, this could take place in the space of ten days um, this very well also might be alluding back to Daniel chapter one right revelation as we've seen is is just full of allusions back to Daniel and if you're familiar with Daniel chapter one what happens right in Daniel chapter one he is tested for ten days, is he not? Right? He was to eat the vegetables and, and drink water instead of defiling himself with the food and the drink of the king. And so this could be an allusion back to that. Jesus telling the saints in Smyrna, just as Daniel did not defile himself with doing what the king wanted, so too you are not to defile yourselves right? by bowing the knee to Caesar and declaring that he is Lord. But do we see, brothers and sisters, all that Smyrna is enduring and all that Christ says that they will endure. Poverty, betrayal, outcasts, imprisonment, and death. These are all things that they endured, all because they would not bow the knee to Caesar as Lord. And it's also the one thing they had to do to have all of these things. They didn't have to mean it. All they had to do was say, Caesar is Lord. And they could have economic prosperity. They could have their lives back. Right? They could be out of prison and have their freedom. They didn't have to be social outcasts any longer. If all they did was bow the knee. But they didn't. They refused. They couldn't because Jesus was the only Lord. And so I want us to see something, right? Do we see what the faith of these Christians in Smyrna cost them? And do we see what they were willing to give up for the sake of Christ? Do we see what their faith cost them? Do we see the sacrifice they were willing to make for Christ? And I ask you this, does your faith in any way resemble this? Does your faith in any way resemble this? Right? Has, has being a Christian, ask yourself this, has me being a Christian cost me anything in my life? Has it cost me a thing? Because one thing that we've learned through the book of Revelation is that being a Christian means sacrifice. It means losing out. It means going without. It means not having It's not just a title we have, brothers and sisters. It's not just something that we do for an hour or two on Sunday morning. Christianity costs people their lives. Christianity costs people their livelihoods. And do we think that we can walk around calling ourselves Christians and it costs us nothing? How dare you if you do? I understand that in America we live in a, you know, we live relatively easy Christian lives. None of us here are going to face the sword. More than likely. But, brothers and sisters, as Christians, and if you're living faithfully for Christ, then you've probably had to sacrifice friendships. Maybe sacrifice relationships with people in your own family. Perhaps some of you have, or in the future will have to lose your job for your faith. Some of you will be persecuted as you speak to people about Christ in your everyday lives. And yet, even those small sufferings and persecutions that Christians in America deal with, we boohoo and we cry and we pity ourselves. For the little bit of persecution and suffering that we endure for these things. Right? What, what Polycarp suffered, what the church in Smyrna suffered, that is real sacrifice. And yet we are unwilling to sacrifice the smallest things in our lives. We are unwilling to sacrifice even a little extra bit of our time away from recreation, away from our television sets, away from our jobs. I'm not oblivious to the fact that through our study in the book of Revelation, sermons are going about five or ten minutes longer than they usually do. Are there any of you here who are irritated by that? They can't sacrifice an extra five or ten minutes? you got to get out of here that quick? But you can't sacrifice that time to sit under the Word of God? When we groan at the smallest of sacrifices, right, time, friendship, family, job, all these things, instead of not wanting suffering and persecution, we always find ourselves removing ourselves from anything that would affect our earthly comforts, don't we? If something's gonna hurt us, we, we remove ourselves. So that we don't miss out on, the, on our earthly enjoyments that we have. But instead of that, doing that, brothers and sisters, what we need to do is we need to maintain our faithful witness at all times and in all places. And then be glad when you suffer for righteousness' sake. Right? You ought to count it in honor that the devil assails you. Right? You ought to count it count in it honor That he is scheming after your soul. Right? That he is attacking you. That he has his minions who are out there looking to destroy his church. You ought to count it in honor when you are reviled and made fun of and called names for proclaiming the name of Christ. You know why you ought to count that in honor? Because it's then you know that they identify you with Christ. Right? It's there that they, that you know that they know that you are Christ and, and he is yours. And so, if we are Christ's brothers and sisters, we should not mind if it costs us our job, or if it costs us friendships, or no matter what it costs us. Who cares? What does it matter what they can strip us of of our earthly and physical uh, gifts that we have been given? For no matter what they can strip us of earthly, they cannot strip us of God's grace that He has bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? They, they, this world cannot strip us of that eternal inheritance that awaits all who have come to Christ in faith. This is the way the Christian is, is to think. This is the way we ought to think. This is the way the, the true Christian ought to think. And isn't this, though, a far cry from much of the Christianity today that we get? It's a far cry from the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, is it not? For them, the saints in Smyrna just didn't have enough faith. Well, that's not true. We know that. That's not true. But rather, you know, people who say that are leaders of, of synagogues of Satan under the guise of a Christian church. They are not true Christians. Right? For, for Christ tells us, in fact, they were rich in faith. They weren't lacking in faith. They were rich in it. It was these saints to the church of Smyrna who were the prosperous ones, who were the wealthy ones. For although they lost all, what do we see? Christ commends them because they were rich where it matters to God. Right in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Right? They were rich in truth. They were rich in peace. They were rich in love. They were rich in works. Right? They were rich in storing of treasures in heaven, not on earth. And so because of this, Jesus encourages them with these words in verses 10 and 11. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This leads us to our second and our final point this morning, which is the exhortation to the church the exhortation to the church. Now, what I want us to see is that in these last two verses, uh, Christ exhorts or He urges the church on in two ways. He says two things. Right? He says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. That's a message Christians of every age need to hear, isn't it? We oftentimes behave just like fearful children do we not think about it as parents when you maybe when you took your child to the to the barber shop for the first time and you sat him in the chair and you put the the little robe around their you know their neck they were happy at, at the beginning and then you the barber comes out and he brings the buzzer and he and all of a sudden wiggling around kicking screaming right they, they want to get out because of what? Because of fear. Because of fear, they want to get away from the thing that scares them. And in the same way, you and I are that very, uh, do, do those very same things, do we not? Right? When we are faced with trials, when God puts things in our life that we, that we don't like, we try to wiggle out of them, we, we kick and we scream and we, we push back against what God has put in our life. Right? We don't want to trust that the trial that we are facing is one that, that God has put in our way and wants that trial in our life. And so we do everything that we can to run to comfort, to run to security, to run to safety. But brothers and sisters, know this. We mustn't do that. We mustn't run away and flee our trials, believing that's what God wants us to do. And this is a very important point you all need to see and understand today. That Jesus does not say to the saints in Smyrna, do not fear. For after the tribulation, I will get you out. But rather, what he says to them is, Do not fear. For what Satan intends for evil, I intend for good. That is the message to the saints. That Satan's purpose in imprisoning you is to tempt you to sin. Is to tempt you to fall away from Christ. To abandon your confession and your profession. But what God intends in testing your faith by putting you there is to refine your faith, to strengthen your faith, to glorify Himself in the midst of that. And He's telling them, do not fear them, for I am doing this for you, and then you will die. But don't worry, for I will give unto you this crown of life. That's the message. Do not fear you are going to be in prison and you are going to die. But there's no reason to fear death. Right? That's the message. That's the message. Right? He's, say, he's not saying my job as God is to get you out of trials. What he's saying is you're in trials for my purposes. And that is to glorify myself. That is to, to build up and sanctify your own faith, but it's also to sanctify the church at large as well. You see, brothers and sisters, you need to stop looking at just what's in front of you. Just stop looking at the present. Take a step back. Look at the big picture. It ain't all about you. right? We need to understand this. Your life isn't about you. Your life is about Christ. Your life is about advancing the kingdom. Your life is about proclaiming the gospel. Your life is about... All of these things. And perhaps one day, like Polycarp, your life might have an impact on generations to come. This is what we see in the example of Polycarp. It wasn't all about Polycarp. Because 2,000 years later, the Lord is using it to strengthen His church and to glorify His name, is He not? It's not all about you. And that means brothers and sisters, trials and sufferings. But so what? So what? Big deal. This is why Peter says you're to rejoice in your sufferings. Because he believed what Paul believed in Romans 8:18. 8, For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Christ urges them on then, not only to don't fear death, Don't fear what's going to happen to you. Don't fear what you're going to suffer. But He also then urges them on in a second way by telling them, be faithful. He says, be faithful to death and I will give to you a crown of life. Now if anyone else said this to them, you you might not believe it. But it's it's Jesus who is the one who, who gives these words all their meaning, who is saying this to them. Here's where that self-designation comes into play, does it not? Be faithful unto death and I will give to you the crown of life. Jesus is saying to them that I am the one who has defeated death. I am the one who, who holds life in my hand, who has triumphed over death and who has risen by my own power. And it is now this promise I give to you, risen life with me. Right? he says, "I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life here is eternal life that he's speaking about. Right? he promises to them eternal life for the one who overcomes tribulation. It is that crown of life that Paul looked at, looked for and longed after in Second Timothy chapter four, verses seven and eight, where he says this: "I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness." which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Brothers and sisters, it is this crown that the church in Smyrna is looking for and longing after, which allows them to be faithful unto death. So the question is, do you look forward to, are you anticipating, are you longing to have that crown as Paul and the saints in Smyrna were? Now, the crown that Christ speaks of would have immediately brought to their minds the laurel wreath. Right? The laurel wreath was a crown that was given uh, to an athlete who triumphed in some event that he was in. And this is what Paul uh, speaks about in 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25. He says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we in imperishable. Right? It is this imperishable wreath that Christ is promising to the saints in Smyrna. Right? This is what he promises to us, his victorious church. And that crown though, ought to, also ought to, in light of the fact that he reveals himself as the one who died and came back to life, this crown imagery also ought to cause us to think back to his crown of thorns. Right, it, also, it ought to cause us to think back to Christ's sacrifice for us. How he, he came down and assumed that human nature and lived a perfect, obedient life and suffered and died for us. Which ought to do what for us? It ought to motivate us to, to give all of our life, to sacrifice our whole life for Him. right? Jesus says, I exchanged my life for yours. Now it is for you to exchange your earthly life for a heavenly one. Right? That is what He is calling upon the saints to do. So we have to ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, if if Christ puts us in these trials, if He does it to refine our faith, and if He does it to strengthen His church and the the body of Christ, if He does it to glorify Himself, then don't you believe that the God who does those things will equip you, whatever trial He has placed you in? And if you believe that, then you, like the church in Smyrna, do not fear. Do not fear what you will suffer. Simply be faithful. Be faithful to Christ. For we know that He who began a good work in us will will bring that work to completion. That is a promise He has given to every one of us here. That like the triumphant athlete, Christ is going to bring us all through the finish line. If you are a true saint in the Lord. Now brothers and sisters, we live in a day and age in which everyone wants to be a part of a ministry. And I think part of the reason for that is is because we want to feel uh, important. Or we want to feel like we belong to something. We can tell people, I'm a part of this ministry or, or that ministry. You know, the bigger churches, you know, they have a nursery ministry or a music ministry. Right? All, these, all these different ministries. But I'm here today to tell you, brothers and sisters, that you all are being called to a ministry. You might not like it. It's not glamorous. It's not something you don't want to brag and tell your friends about. But it's a ministry of suffering. We've all been called to the ministry of suffering. And so we have to ask the question, do you belong to that ministry? That's the one, brothers and sisters, that you ought to get in line for. That's the one that you ought to long to be a part of. That title is a much more important title to take on. That ministry is a much more important ministry to be a part of. It might not make you feel important before the eyes of men, but it is those who are important before the eyes of God. And the only requirement for suffering is to be faithful. Nobody's calling on you to to go out and look look to suffer. Oh, let me find the ways I can suffer today. No. The message is, if you are faithful, you will suffer. That's the message. And if you are faithful, you don't have to fear death. For even for the believer, when you die, you still triumph. That's why you don't have to fear. Just be faithful. No matter what you suffer, even if you die, you triumph. Because what does Jesus say? The second death has no power over you. The second death is that eternal punishment that awaits in the lake of fire when Christ returns on that last day. But what does Jesus say in Revelation chapter 20? Blessed is he who has a share in the first resurrection. That first resurrection is your conversion. Blessed is he who has had their heart captured by the Lord and turned to Him. Right? Blessed is he amongst you here who has had that heart of stone taken out and the heart of flesh placed in. Right? Blessed are you here who are heirs with Christ to that eternal inheritance that awaits you. For that second death can no longer hurt you. But to the one who does not believe, it says the very opposite, doesn't it? For the one who does not believe, you have not conquered the second death. Its power is still over you. You will not experience glory with Christ when He returns. But rather, you will experience the lake of fire. And so, if that is you here today, then I call upon you to, to listen to the words, heed the words of the Savior, to turn from your sin, to trust in Christ, to cleave to His merits, to believe in Him as your Savior and as your Lord and none other. For those of you here who profess Christ, I call upon you to continue to do so, to, to not shrink back, to not be lovers of the world, to not be loyal to the world, to not be friends with the world, because you fear what might happen to you if you don't. Right? Rather, you need to fear what will happen to you if you do. And so brothers and sisters, like Christ, and like John as he pens this and gives it to the angel of the church, who would read and exhort the church aloud, I too exhort you. Be faithful. Do not fear. For the crown is yours. It is already won. Not because of your efforts, but because of the triumphant work of Christ on Calvary's cross for you and I. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for Your Word this morning. We are so thankful for how it uplifts the, the souls of the elect We pray, Father, that You would uh, use us. That You would make us instruments of Your righteousness. That You would give us boldness and courage uh, to not shrink back from the world, uh, to not give in to uh, the temptations of the evil one, to not fear, but to simply be faithful witnesses to Christ here on earth. It's to You we come to for the strength and the boldness and the courage and it is to you that we ask all these things in christ's name we pray amen